Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Welcome back to Partial View Podcast. Hope you're excited for more conversations about the quote-unquote American theater today. We're going to be talking about a topic that I'm not going to call it fraught, but we have a lot of opinions about and a lot of people have a lot of opinions about. And there are opinions that have been shared on this podcast for sure before and recently. We're going to be getting into what young artists take away from BFA programs as they uh, are currently structured. And with us today as our guest, we have the wonderful James Rose. You know them as at James is smiling on all the socials. James Rose is a gender fluid actress, writer, and content creator based in New York City. James holds degrees from NYU in musical theater and child and adolescent mental health studies and a certificate in diversity, equity, and inclusion from Cornell University. As an actress, James made queer theater history as the youngest openly non-binary performer to take on the title role of Hedwig and the Angry Inch professionally. The same year, they co-starred in the indie film Adelphi, which premiered at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival. They're an activist around transgender issues, sexual violence, and eating disorder awareness. She's also an ambassador for Planned Parenthood, has consulted with Meta slash Instagram on eliminating pro-eating disorder content, and has developed and implemented sexual harassment trainings and safe reporting programs at regional theaters and corporations across the country. Our listeners probably know our guest best from their presence on social media, where James writes about gender, queerness, survivorship, mental health, their feelings, and their exes. James values transparency, authenticity, and hopes to make the internet a little better than they found it. And I kept that sentence in because it so perfectly mirrors our little tagline for this podcast, which is that we're oh, hoping yes. to leave the American theater a little bit better than we found it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we're thrilled that you're here, James. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for that introduction. It always sounds so cool to hear it out loud. I'm like, oh, wow, I guess maybe I've done a few cool things. That's so thank you. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for that little ego boost. I appreciate it. <laughs> Before we get into the nitty gritty, we like to talk about something we're enjoying lately. Uh, it doesn't have to be theater. We tend, right now, Danielle and I have made the choice to not shout out, like, SAG content, but, you know, right? don't feel pressure. Yeah. I, okay. I also am making the choice gotcha. not to shout out SAG content yes. as we are still on strike. Um, and something that's giving me joy is yes! Union Solidarity. <laughs> <laughs> um no, I mean, truly, I, I really do think that um, one of the things that gave me joy most recently, and depending on when this episode airs, I, I hope that it's no longer mm -hmm. relevant that we're on a strike. And I hope we're looking back on this going, wow, those were the days. But uh, something that really did give me hope and solidarity was the terms in which the AMPTP mm -hmm. met with the WGA for their strike resolution, essentially, and how ironclad the WGA was about getting exactly what they wanted. And, and that gives me a lot of hope. Um, SAG-AFTRA has notoriously not had the same backbone that the WGA has had. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, because the AMPTP was able to concede, you know, necessary worker and labor rights to the WGA, it gives me hope that there's possibility for that to happen to SAG-AFTRA as well. So 
That is, I mean, I know that's totally not the question. I'm no, sure it's so I was the question. Absolutely. Like, I'm loving reading this book, but no, I'm really loving Union Solidarity and I'm loving the opportunity for so many people that I'm in community with as other artists to renegotiate our relationship to artistry mm-hmm. and see what we miss and what we don't. You know, like, I think that was a big thing we learned in the pandemic was who actually is doing this because they love it and they need to do it and it's who they are and who is caught on the hamster wheel of musical theater culture and can't get themselves off for a whole bunch of reasons. And so I'm noticing a similar thing during this strike. And I think it's, while I would not and never want anybody in our industry to be suffering, I am also appreciative of how many people are renegotiating their relationship to it and seeing what really does work for them because there's nothing wrong with stepping away from an industry that you feel like is no longer serving you absolutely and so it's giving me joy to see people step into their power in various different settings amazing what about you two yeah i mean just to respond to that like we did an episode Mm -hmm. a while back um with c quintana and victoria pollock Mm -hmm. about the wga strike Mm -hmm. and like writers compensation Mm -hmm. and at the time we recorded it I don't think SAG had even joined the strike yet. It hadn't. It was oh, it was really? pretty oh, yeah, early yeah. on. Comparatively. Yeah. Wow. So fingers crossed that by the time this episode airs, you know, we have more joy to share in that realm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> For me, I have been, you know, in the past several episodes, I've been shouting out a lot of awful reality TV. And so today is a nice break from that. Um, I loved the, I recently, like a couple weekends ago, just randomly decided to go to the Museum of the City of New York on a Sunday afternoon. I've never been. How was it? It's really nice. I'd been there before, but it had been a number of years. Um, And they have an exhibit going on right now through next July that's called This is New York, A Hundred Years of the City in Art and Pop Culture. And they have different rooms of like different representations of New York City through like street art around the city, through like more formal, um, like museum level, quote unquote, fine art and like paintings, through TV and film, through literature. Um, There's a whole room of New York City representation on film that was like going into like one part that was really cool was this the shift from New York City being represented on film through like LA sound stages to actually shooting on location in the city oh that's so fascinating and it was it was actually very very cool and like on the musical movie of On the Town was one of the first to shoot on location. I was just going to ask, mm-hmm. was on the town one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there were a lot of musicals in there. Like, they were also, they featured the new West Side, the original West Side Story and the new West Side Story. They featured in the Heights. Okay. They featured, funnily enough, a chorus line, even though the a chorus line movie is, like, not the best, um, but... Very <laughs> New York, though. Very, very, New, very York New York and of its time. Totally yeah. New York, yeah. And, of course, you know, things like Taxi Driver and, like, right. the TV room, like, Seinfeld and Friends and... Mm-hmm. Eloise at the Plaza and it was just it was really fun and just like a really fun little like wander through like these fantasy versions of New York it was fun I recommend it that's great I need, I I need to go I need to go it's right up my alley it really is what about you Alex <laughs> what are you enjoying okay if not this exhibit um vicariously through me I know <laughs> um so I since the last time we've recorded I've seen so many shows like I need to calm down. It's been a lot. Um, I've decided 
to cheat a little bit and I'm going to shout out three things, one from three <laughs> different shows and I'm not going to talk about them forever. I'm not going to take Perfect. up a lot of time. Um, the first thing I'm going to shout out is <laughs> Jackie Burns as Celine Dion in Titanic. In Titanic. Oh, oh my God. gosh. So good. She was perfection. I want to go back just to see her play Celine again. Um, Do we know how long she's in it? I don't know. I truly don't know. Because okay. um, I need to, I still need to see it and I really want to see her. Titanic, I believe, is in an open-ended run downtown by Union Square um, at the Daryl Roth, the Theater, Roth. Theater. And it's just such a great parody with Celine Dion songs. Though is not... It, it's, it's like barely a parody. It's like... It's a whole new it, plot. It, it kind of is, point. yeah. But then, so what's great. funny is my friend and I went to see it, and then the next day we watched Titanic, and we were like, oh, there's stuff in here that was taken directly from the movie that we just didn't see because we hadn't seen the movie in so long. Yeah. It was so good. Anyway, Jackie Burns is Celine Dion. And then I also saw I Can Get It For You Wholesale at Classic Stage Company. And I just want to shout out Trip Coleman's Incredible Direction. I think that that mm-hmm. piece, it has a revised book. So it's not, you know, the old Barbara Streisand version, anything like that. It, it has the same songs and same plot, but it's, you know, a little bit probably tighter. And it flows really well. But just like the visual, the visuals that um, they were able to create within the small, minimal CSC space was just like stunning and and just so good. The performances were great, elevated, so high. Love the direction of that show. And that's running through December 17th. If anyone's in New York and wants to check that out. And then I also want to shout out, I saw the New England premiere of the complete works of Jane Austen abridged at Playhouse on Park in West Hartford, Connecticut. And this show has closed. I was at the final performance, unfortunately, but hopefully it ha- keeps on having a life. I found it really fun, and I wanted to specifically shout out the moment when um, an actor in the play who's just getting into Jane Austen uses D&D as a way to get into Northanger Abbey. <laughs> it was okay. It was a very fun little scene. I thought it was really well done. And I was actually seeing it with the person who was my first ever DM for my first ever D&D campaign. So that was just a really fun little full circle moment. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I've been seeing lots of like good shit lately, and I'm not taking any of it for granted. But those are just a couple of the things I've been enjoying. <laughs> that's so great. Yeah. And what are the other three things you saw this week? in the last like two weeks in the in the last couple weeks oh my gosh um i also saw i saw the play that goes wrong off broadway i saw the shark is broken on broadway uh last night i saw jaja's african hair braiding which is manhattan theater club uh in their broadway space and then i saw merrily we roll along again but we don't need to talk about merrily more on this podcast we've screamed about it (laughs) since the new york theater workshop run we have been it's come up every episode. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so that's that's everything I've been seeing. <laughs> Great. Um, let's shift into the topic of the day. Let's do so, it. So as some background, this is a topic that Alex and I have wanted to talk about for 
really like this is on our idea list from mm-hmm. our initial brainstorm for the podcast, but we weren't quite sure the angle to take or how to approach it, especially because neither Alex nor I actually went to a BFA program. Yeah. We both auditioned for them, didn't get in, and didn't then did something in. else. So <laughs> it was a special that was also complicating our thoughts around like how to approach it. Then, lo and behold, social media comes through. And James posted a wonderful video responding to Playbill's article about the top 10 musical theater BFA programs. While I was thrilled to be going to one of these programs at the time, I endured so much trauma throughout the course of this that I don't actually know if it was worth it because I've spent the last many years of my career unlearning and like upchucking everything that was taught to me so that I could find what my actual true voice was as an artist. As great as some of the faculty may be, and you're gonna find some gems at these places, they're great at making you marketable for the Broadway industry right now. They are not necessarily great at helping you find your individual voice as an artist, which I run. So like the point of the article was like what was represented, I think, on Broadway this season, mm-hmm. which I think is a crucial point to make because that is linking the idea that a BFA program gets you to Broadway. And that Broadway is also a be-all, end-all, which Mm -hmm. I think is a really rudimentary, distilled version of working in the theater. Yeah, this is this is that's something that came up when we were talking to Michael Kushner a while back, because he was saying that, like, while he he loved the experience of his BFA program at Ithaca, um, he fully recognizes and was saying, like, no, like for anybody who's in high school and applying to colleges and like thinking about auditioning for BFA programs, don't do it just because you think it's necessary because it's not necessary. It serves a specific purpose that Mm -hmm. suits some people and not others. Um, Yeah. And just as a note, we are probably going to be talking a lot about acting and musical theater BFAs. There are, of course, other BFAs for uh, different aspects of theater making. The acting and musical theater BFAs, I would say, are kind of like the majority, I would say, of the BFAs that are given out from undergraduate universities and colleges. Yeah, just want to get that out there. Yeah, and I think we are touching on some of the other programs that exist, but like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the... Discussion will be skewed in the same way that these the existence of these programs is skewed. <laughs> yeah, so I think one of the things that really struck both of us about the video that you posted was talking about this concept of being marketable in the industry. And mm-hmm. we all, I think everyone who goes into the theater like, realizes that at one point or another, you do have to market yourself to get work. You have to know if it's not as a performer or as a designer, like even just like crafting your resume for an admin job, making the right connections, kind of putting on, maybe even like putting on a facade, a professional facade. There's a lot of, I would say, criticism these days that there a lot of the training that you get in a BFA program is kind of teaching everybody the same kind of skills. Mm-hmm. And you touched a little bit on that on your video and... I'm really interested in hearing more about, you can talk about like your experience as much as you want or as little as you want and what you've kind of seen in the industry in terms of, you know, what what is being taught in a BFA program and how it is transferred to people trying to get jobs in the industry. 
Yeah, like, how has that trans translated into, like, actual practice and your actual experience? And, like, yeah, I guess just starting off, like, what is, like, as much or as little as you want to get into it, like, what was your experience like? Yeah, it's so funny that we're talking about BFAs because I auditioned for, I think I auditioned for, like, 14 musical theater programs and got into, oh, like, my... nearly all of them. And That's... I chose the one that was Sounds a like the most exhausting. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, it was exhausting. Yeah, my senior year was pretty wild. I also went to an arts high school, so I was kind of, like, already mm. in a BFA program. And I was really lucky to have that arts education because I didn't start theater till I was, like, maybe a sophomore in high school. My first show was Parade, um, like, which is wow. wild to, like, say that I, like, Frankie Epson Parade was the first, like, thing I did, you know? Like, I had done a community theater production of Cinderella before that, but, like, the first role that I played on stage was Frankie Epson Parade. Like, I got... Really? Like, yeah. hard oh, yeah. the And, like, we had a full wow. turntable on stage. We, like, spoiler alert for Parade, like, we did the, like, Shema scene that he did. Like, we did that hanging scene on stage because we had a fly system. It was ridiculous. Oh like, it and it was impactful because it was also, like, you know, part of the introduction of like how theater is social justice very early on in my, in my career, I went, you know, to, I, I grew up in Florida. And so I went to a school that was like minority white people, which was a really exciting education to receive because there was not one globalized or homogenized idea of what art should be. It was still, so, there was still so many problems with it. It's not to say this was the oasis of inclusion. It wasn't, but at the same time I was, coming in with a baseline of everybody has a different kind of story they tell well and for better or for worse we I mean I think overall it was for better but the canon for like any sort of stories that don't center white people in musical theater especially like 15 years ago <laughs> was not that many but our teachers really did work very hard to do as much as they could to be like color conscious casting versus like finding shows that actually fit the different kinds of people that we had and the different stories that we could tell you know like we did we did Parade, we did Rent, we did In the Heights, we did Spring Awakening, we did Jane Eyre, we did Bat Boy, we did Curtains. I mean, it was Bat nuts. Bat Boy like, slaps, and it's so wow. underappreciated. Oh my God, I was Bat Boy. Yeah, I That's, shaved my I whole body it. for this. So if you can imagine me as like a 17-year-old twink in like a loincloth and no hair <laughs> on my body, screaming, you know, yeah, apology to a cow with like fake blood <sighs> dripping down me. That is exactly what my high school education was. Um, which, which was really wow. quick. This was Blake High School in Tampa, Florida. I The environment that I was into is like relatively competitive. And so mm -hmm. like, even though like I'm non-binary and at the time I was still like going for like male roles at the time, which was a whole other conversation. And there were like seven guys in my year and almost no women. Um, and so we just like, there was constant competition because like vocal range wise, we were all really similar, except mm -hmm. I was the only one that wasn't a true tenor. And so I just thought I was bad because I couldn't sing like Santa Fe from Newsies, you know what I mean? Um, and it turns out <laughs> I had no reason to need to do that. Like there's plenty of people that can do that and I can do so many other things, but that was not taught yeah. to me. And that's a through line, I feel like, throughout the rest of this. So when we were all auditioning for college programs, everybody was like, I'm going to get in and you're not. And I was like, okay. I mean, it was socially, they were very concerned with letting me know that they did not think that I was good enough to be there. I had also transferred in as a second year and that really mm -hmm. screwed everything up. It's for them, not for me. I had a great time. And... <laughs> Was, I mean, good. I'm it was glad. wild. Yeah. I mean, I was also super academically focused. So like when I was looking at schools, my yeah. backup option was I just applied to all seven Ivies and I was like, I'll get into one of them at least. 
And that that was my backup plan. Like, do I hear myself? That's ridiculous. But that's what Wait, I Wait, so you applied to all seven Ivies on top of auditioning for 14 BFA programs? Mental illness runs deep. Well, and I will say, I'm pretty sure that musical theater programs have lower acceptance rates than Ivy's. So you were probably, you were probably on the right track there. I thought so too. And I knew like academically, I was like, I can go anywhere I want to. Um, And I was right. I was like, if I don't get into a thing, I'll get into it somewhere for one of these Ivy's. Um, And that's what happened. And then I chose musical theater, but I looked at all of these programs. I mean, like you named, like all the programs that were on that list and more, like I got into most of it. You know what I mean? It was just like one of those things where I was hitting just the right phase of like being young and bright eyed, bushy tailed book of Mormon adjacent enough to like really, really rock it. And I, couldn't dance but I was skinny so that's all that mattered you know what I mean because Strong it's mover. such a fat phobic horrible industry in that way yeah. they were like oh you have abs we'll let you in it doesn't matter that you can't dance you like it's just it's so terrible and so nobody said that but I knew that's what they were like thinking you know what I mean which is abysmal and I I just don't support that but no, I didn't know this I- is making me think of a couple things that I'm trying to find her name there has been a like pretty viral clip from a stand-up comedian who's a trans woman oh yeah talking about she was like sometimes I regret not transitioning earlier but then if I had done that I wouldn't have gotten the lead in all my high school shows <laughs> so true <though. laughs> and it's so it true. was so good that was the thing I remember when we did Les Mis oh yeah we did Les Mis as a high school which is ridiculous I was called back for mm. Cosette because I could sing the high C. And so I was like- I love that. (laughs) I love that. So then I ended up, it's funny, we were talking about BFA programs. I ended up at a BM program and not actually at a BFA program, technically, whatever. I mean, it was a musical theater degree. I was in Steinhardt, which is not something I'm necessarily proud of, but it is definitely a thing that occurred. uh, I I, was going to audition for Steinhardt. Really? No way. I ended up going to NYU, but CAS like undeclared because the year that I was applying, Steinhardt had switched or like changed their application requirements. Sure. When I had first looked at it, it was just like an in-person audition in February, like everything else. It was a whole pre-screen. And by the time that I went to apply we had to submit a tape and I was like not prepared. I was like, I'm on track to be ready for things in February, not now. Yeah. So I ended up just applying undeclared. Makes sense. But it's so funny because like we we both auditioned at the time when like we all all would have auditioned at the time. Video auditions were weird. Like when that was not the norm at all. Like I remember Mm -hmm. thinking it was so strange watching myself on camera which is ironic because now I do TV film. (laughs) You know, like it was such a strange experience thinking like, how do you make a musical piece fit on a camera as a pre-screen? Like this does not compute to me. I still don't think that it really works, but I think it, I think we can get close. But yeah, I mean, the, I, the whole pre-screen process was nuts. I mean, the entire process of even just before you get to the BFA and experience with the BFA is, the whole process is so inaccessible because all of them have application fees for the university. And then additionally, mm-hmm. you'll often tack on a pre-screening fee because now that video auditions have been so normalized, which I think is a good thing accessibility wise to have video auditions and pre-screens be normalized and have that first round of like, 
okay, you are or you are not what we're looking for in this program, which can ultimately save you money and time, but it's still an application process. It's still access to video. It's access to an accompanist. It's access to a lot of times voice lessons or training or like understanding how this works. Yeah. Like, you know, gone are the days when you can just have kind of a raw gem of a voice and you go to a, a BFA program or you go to a music program and you learn how to become a musical theater musician. Like that's not a thing anymore, which is, you know, a real yeah. shame. It's all like it's cookie cutter polish now. And it a is. Lot of pro- not every program, but a lot of programs. But a lot of them are, especially. Be- I was just going to add there are even coaches. Like you mm-hmm. even like so many oh, people hire coaches for their musical theater auditions. Yeah, it's an entire industry. Is wild to me. Yeah. And also, I mean, it makes sense. Like my voice teacher was in high school was fantastic about teaching me that I was already a working artist. She was like, you're singing Les Mis at 17. Like you are a working professional right now. You may not be getting paid, but the demands of you as a vocalist, as an actor, as a dancer and other shows are Mm -hmm. what the demands are of a professional working artist. And so we are training as one. And it was always an interesting conversation about preparation because she was like, I want you to sing these roles. I want you to be able to do these things. It may also set us back progress wise for what you will be able to do in a college audition. Because when you're practicing a role, you're not necessarily advancing your technique in the same way. You are hammering in where your technique is at that time. Like, you know, as you get older, as a, in my experience, as I mature as a vocalist and as an actor, my technique grows within the work that I'm doing, but it's because it's my job and I'm not taking 18 classes on top of it. I'm not trying to be a teenager. I'm not trying to have a social life in the same way that I was. I'm not going through puberty. You know what I mean? Kind of actually the whole trans thing really is like a second puberty, but that's, that's individual. (laughs) And um, then you get to the BFA program. If you're rich enough to like do this whole experience, you know, and then What I found is most of the schools that I looked at, I could find the senior that I was going to replace, you know, like I remember looking at CCM in Carnegie and Penn State in Michigan and NYU and all the places that I auditioned at. And I was like, I see who I'm going to replace. And, you know, it was usually some guy named Jake or Shane or whatever. And I and it was like, okay, great. We're going to be the like crop haired Book of Mormon, tappy, leggy dancer boy. And that was like what I thought my thing was. And so I didn't even question my gender as much at the time because I saw an avenue in, you know, and um, Mm -hmm. ultimately, like when I got to my program, I chose my program because of the music aspect of it, as opposed to the other BFA programs that I had gotten into, despite some of them being like really big, important names. I just thought that like the music was going to be way more exciting to me. And I didn't really necessarily want to be a dancer. And I didn't like the location. I was going to say, that's the program that like, yeah. Part of the reason I was looking at it was I was like, okay, singing and acting. Yeah, which Great. is so funny. I don't need to be a triple threat. Because I, I graduated dance. and my first job was being a dance captain. Like I graduated a dancer. <laughs> like I, I fully found my mm. niche and it was not singing. <laughs> um, but there was, I mean, back to your point earlier about like the marketability, like there was so much conversation with 17 and 18 year olds about your type in the industry which is the most asinine thing to me. Your type is young. Your type is glee. Your type is Frederica in a little night music. Your type is everyone in Carrie. Like your type is the prom. Your type is not like young ingenue. Like, yeah, newsies. Your type is newsies. We're all 12 year old boys trying to belt as high as we can 
for justice. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> for union solidarity. Yeah, union which is so solidarity. Because there's my freaking Newsies poster from when I did Newsies. But like, which was hilarious because I was like, I'm not a dancer, Newsies. And um, then I was a dancer. All of that to be said, like what, that conversation around that, like trying to box a 17 year old growing adolescent person into like you are the maid characters like fuck you oh like that's God. not yeah. right like that's just a way yeah. it's racialized it's fat phobic it is just a way we perpetuate yep. the systems at play like you tell me when uh somebody who's like a mezzo that's really gonna fit those like madame Thenardier roles but she's skinny and blonde when is she ever told she's gonna play those things never and when is like any any plus size woman who has an incredible voice that could sing any Rodgers and Hammerstein piece she wants to, when do they look at her and go, you would be a fabulous Eliza. You know what I mean? I want to see your Eliza mm -hmm. Doolittle. You have comedy. You have the the upper range extension you need. You have the drive for this. You have the heart for this piece. No, they're always going to be like, have you thought about being Madame Tenard yet? You know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's Have you thought about being Martha in Secret Garden? Oh, God. Yeah. Great song. Great song. But mm. so <laughs> this is funny because what I have observed is that very slowly, I do think that there are casting directors and directors and in general artists that are starting to really push back on this idea mm -hmm. of type. Yep. And it's happening like really slowly, but it's happening. It is. My question is, is it happening in the educational sphere, do we think? And how long do we think it's going to take until... I the idea of that typing is cast out? That's a great question. And I think that the educational typing and the educational like tokenism and cherry picking of people's identities to put into their program is reactive to what the industry trends are. For instance, 10 years ago, if you were trans or non-binary, you were, nobody knew what to do with you. And now they look at you and go, oh, you could be an Anne Juliet. So like, we'll take you because you might be the one person that ends up playing that role. And like, that's a great thing. You know what I mean? Like, until we had, I mean, I know a lot of black artists that talk about Hamilton specifically being the thing where it was like, if they could sing that particular styling, they had a better shot at getting into a BFA mm -hmm. program because people were like, I know where to slot you and how to market you. Never mind That's that they might fascinating be a fantastic, and terrible. It's fan it's terrible. I mean, what's it's I mean, it's terrible because of tokenization. It's not terrible that like we shouldn't yeah. be seeing where people slot into yeah. because there are so many black mm -hmm. artists and artists of color that like are fantastic in it's that It's just the piece. idea of thinking no, yeah. about it as slots. But it's the idea of thinking about it as slots, just and like thinking And thinking about it because one show came along. Right. Oh, now right. there's opportunity for you. And it's like, and it's, for the it's college, like, no. there's so many, I mean, think about how many Hamilton tours and, and Broadway versions and international versions there have been. That's money for the college. If they can put out the next yeah. and Peggy, then they have so much marketing that they can do for their university. And so everybody's fighting over the same six women that like, is that what they even want to do? Have they been asked? What is their artistry? And I think overall, the BFA programs mirror the trends of the industry as opposed to finding the individuality of the artist. That's what I found in my experience. And, and I know a lot of the educators that will be really upset by my saying that, which I think is exactly why it needs to be said, because there are people who really think that they are nurturing an artist by saying, here is how you're marketable. Here's how the industry works. It's fucked up, but here's how the industry works. And I, I in my personal opinion, is that that does a disservice to the artist in front of you. And I know that like my school particularly had, 
it was like a, it was just one vocal style of thinking. Like it was one school of thought and we called it head voice or no voice. Like everybody had to sing in head voice. Like, you know, like if you were singing a middle C in chest voice, that was a cardinal sin, you know? And like, everybody had to learn how to like, if you were doing a head dominant mix, like you were, you were wrong and you couldn't even think about making a sound in chest voice until your junior year. That is That's not a- so funny to hear because that means like, I mean, not that I had a shot in the first place, but like triple the amount that I would not have had a shot because I am a belter. Sure. And I that was alto belter. Yeah. I would Steinhardt would have been like, no. Yeah, no, they would have been like, <laughs> that's great. And you're stuck in chest voice and we need to get you out of it. And like what ended up happening, like my personal experience was that I came in a new singer that had like some raw talent, but like I didn't have a lot of technical foundation. I didn't have a technical floor to fall to really that was particularly strong. So like I struggled with things like agility. I struggled with things like um, sustaining like a legato line through a song was something very difficult to me. Um, I When I got there, like my vibrato wasn't super consistent because my folds weren't oscillating in a way that was like truly functional. And as I went through school, and I sang like in the back of my throat. And as I went through school, we started to push that forward into this like very nasal place where a lot of people would start to speak from. And we called it, we called it the Steinhard jam because you would get so many guys that would be like, Santa Fe, my own you know what I mean and like and I don't mean to make fun of the other people that were there that was what we were taught we were taught that like shoving everything through your nose and up the top of your forehead was a sustainable way to sing because it was going to take pressure off your vocal folds but what was actually happening is everybody was just like getting it kind of stuck up here and not really knowing how to like balance it out into a full sound you know what I mean there was no all of the like, like forward placement came at the expense of any color and richness in the sound and or the the specifics of your instrument exactly and like, so i walked the same out technique oh yeah or this the same like technical instruction mm-hmm. is gonna sound different in different people exactly people's literal anatomy is different we talk about like the equity versus equality debate like you know the the podium and like everybody who's different heights needs different blocks to be at the same height of the podium everyone was given the same podium and went work with it you know like that was the philosophy and so i mean like i walked out having the vocal dysfunction to the point where i was having difficulty sustaining my voice through like a six-hour rehearsal for a musical which is not what you should be doing at like a you know air quotes premiere musical theater program but I struggled with that. And um, I think that that was because I think it's indicative of how many schools are married to teaching a specific technique as opposed to married to finding out what the individual artistry of the person in front of you is. And I think one of the, the one of the hardest things to find, even in New York City, is a good voice teacher. Somebody who doesn't just teach voice well, like I'm not talking about somebody who gets quick results. I'm talking about somebody who can tell what the dysfunction is and figure out how to make your sounds more sustainable, uh, more that you can replicate them, um, something that is freer, something that is connected to your actual voice, which is going to vary person to person to person. One of the the trends in musical theater right now that really grinds my gears is that most contemporary musical theater cast recordings, everyone sounds the same. But mm. like, if you go back, yeah. thir- you go back 30 years, like, you know, the, the cast recordings I grew up on, Audra, Patty, Angela Lansbury, all of these, they sound different. Yeah. You put on 
any that you put on the carousel revival and you know that that's audra mcdonald you put on uh patty lapone and gypsy you know that it's not ethel merman you know what i mean like and you know that it's not bernadette and, and you like, know it's not yeah. exactly and so and it's not just like i'm like oh i missed the time of the divas i'm talking about like people who had individual voices i'm talking about like if you even go back to the early phantoms they all sounded very different and yeah. now they sound like all the rowels sound the same I mean, we don't have any more because it closed. But you know what I mean? Like all the Christines sound the same in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. And I'm not critiquing people's individual vocal abilities. This is not a judgment on the individual actors. This is a judgment on the trend that says everybody needs to sound. Okay, I think a great example is the Mean Girls cast recording. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't know who's singing what part. And that these women are amazing. They have Mm -hmm. stellar instruments. They have great technique. They're riveting performers. Why is the entire industry saying we must all sound like them? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there was, I think it's a cool choice that you could make artistically to be like, look at these three plastics. They sound really similar. You know what I mean? Like that's so interesting to use that as an example because it's almost like dramaturgically. Dramaturgically. It's a cool thought. I mean, I like it from that perspective. I like that like at the beginning for the first couple of years, you could tell an alphabet apart by the first note. Now Mm -hmm. you cannot. And I think that the way that we've homogenized this is doing a disservice because I think that we're teaching people to a specific sound and not teaching them to find Mm -hmm. their sound. And I think overall, that's like the marketability is like, especially if you exist at any intersection of marginalized identity, musical theater programs are looking at you and whether they want to admit it or not, no matter how many DEI trainings they're slapping on top of their, you know, header for welcome to our program, the majority of them are looking at you and saying, so where, how am I going to end up making money off of you? Like, what are you going to slot into in the industry that works? And so I think the example of like trans people, black people being tokenized in these ways is one of the most potent examples we have because we're mm-hmm. seeing this, you know, it, it, are people really taking in transgender performers because they're like, I am so interested in in helping these artists find what enriches them in changing keys and finding ways to make this gender affirming. Or are they going, oh, well, you know, you could do the Tootsie tour because they're ignorant. <laughs> like, is that what they're saying? I would argue way more people are doing that in their heads than they realize. And I know yeah. assuredly one of the reasons I was getting into school was because I looked like the Book of Mormon and everybody was wanting to be in the Book of Mormon. It was all the rage the time, in yeah. 2014 when I was auditioning for programs. You know what I mean? It was like, mm-hmm. I knew where I, and Dear Evan Hansen, I was like, I know where I slot in. And they knew where right. I slotted in and they were like, we can get you there. And it's like, This makes me think of two things. First is, on one hand, like, and I agree with 100% of what you just said. I do wonder, like, how much of a factor is, like, you know, in your video initially, you talked about a lot of this and and how you felt like you had to go on this sort of journey after Mm. graduation of figuring out what from your theater education you wanted to throw out Mm -hmm. versus what still made sense to you and still felt true. Yes. And that is such a relatable experience. And I think, but I wonder, not in like just speaking about your experience, but in general, it's like so much of that describes just the experience of being in your 20s no matter what you studied Mm -hmm. yeah totally so it's like I wonder I just like wonder about that and like where sort of the line is I guess because I will say like anecdotally that is a much bigger problem and a much more common experience 
and a much more fraught experience for people that studied musical theater and went to yeah. MFA programs. Absolutely. Yes, because your professional life and your personal life are so entwined. It's true. That like in some ways when you're on these like pre-professional tracks that a BFA or a BM mm-hmm. is promising, it's getting too confusing. And you're what? You're 21, you're 22? Like that I don't know. It's it's a lot of pressure and it's a lot of it's a lot to be dealing with at once. Absolutely. And it's about who you are. It's about your identity as a person. Yes. More yeah. than like your knowledge of literary theory is about you as a person. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're well, like, oh, I'm going to yeah. throw out like, I don't think this approach to literary criticism resonates with me anymore like that's not about you as as a human well and there is evolution with that it's like the more that we read the more we expand the more that we challenge the theories the more that we're able to say this one works for this 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 framework is not helpful for me in ferreting out what this person is trying to say in a different piece you know like that is a mark of maturity in my opinion what I find in musical theater is that we are creating factories and we're not creating incubators Mm -hmm. you know Yes. And I think that part of that is because like the, the, you know, to quote bell hooks, the cis hetero racist capitalist patriarchal hellscape. You know, I've misquoted bell hooks terribly in this, but like, you know, the idea. <laughs> but no, I want that on a t-shirt. Yeah. It's great. She talks about it in an interview because someone asked her, asked her about intersectionality and she said she doesn't really use that particularly as a mm. framework for her. It's like we're on the racist heteronormative cisgender patriarchal capitalist landscape does she fall like where is she privileged and disadvantaged and like the spectrum moves um and I I love that analogy that that's been so illuminating for me like in my own work and understanding um and uh the point is like within within that like we are teaching people that you need to go to college right after high school if you don't go to college you're not going to be successful and if you don't graduate from college immediately and like start booking the things that you want to be booking then you have failed somehow when in reality, the majority of 22-year-olds are not ready to move to New York and make a career out of something they have not had time to think for themselves. I didn't have time to think for myself. I always knew I wanted to move New York to New York, so like moving there at 18 for school was the right decision for me. And I'm also, I think, a very rare like breed of person. Most people get swallowed by the city. I was invigorated by it. I still am. Right. I mean, I see yeah. yeah. experience Same. as like someone who went to NYU for undergrad. Right. I grew up on Long Island, though. Exactly. So I think I'd also had more firsthand experience like being in the city more yeah. often and I, I was watching it just Florida. like swallow so many people and that's not their fault yeah. like maybe that no. wasn't the right path for you like the the fact that we don't take like gap years and like go work and like figure out what oh, you want to yes. do like the amount of people that just go into a vfa program because they like theater and they think they have to pick something so they just pick the thing they like as opposed yeah. to yeah. knowing that they're so many people like, do that yeah I mean, oh. I'm sure you heard, I remember at a very prominent musical theater program, they said to me, if you can see yourself doing anything else, go do that thing. That was the, exactly what we were talking about with Michael Kushner. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah, talked a I, lot about this in that episode. Yeah. And how that's so at odds with the idea of a multi-hyphenate. It is. I also, can you imagine being in front of a group of young people and being so self-righteous to in your introduction to like the university that you represent, deciding to open with such a condescending remark. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, it is factual that the majority of people in that room will not make it. 
what kind of message does that send about mm-hmm. the environment that you create? Anyway, yeah. I didn't go to that school. Off the, wait, <laughs> off the record, what school was it? It was CCM, yeah. Okay, because yeah. I doesn't oh, surprise me. You can put that on the record. That was my yeah. experience. Was like <laughs> Bubba at CCM said that, and I was like, "What a jerk!" Like, and not because mm-hmm. I felt insecure about my work or my abilities, but because I was like, "How is this a welcoming environment for me to nurture right. myself as an artist for the next yeah. four years?" If you're looking at me, expecting me to fail, like, have we not studied the psychology of when people are watched, they're more likely to mess up? There's a, it's, there's a kind of, uh, there's a name for that. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but like, mm-hmm. and that, if that's the framework we're using is that most people will fail. Okay. That may be true. But like, if your definition of failure is so narrow and so limited, like if your definition yeah. is like booking Broadway directly out of graduation, yeah, most people are going to fail. I don't know a single person in the industry, and I know a lot of people in the industry, I don't know a single person who graduated from school that booked Broadway, which was many people that I, I knew that graduated and, and booked things mm-hmm. almost immediately. I don't know a single one that was happy mm. because yeah. they got to their dream job. I also, that makes me think of um, this idea of the heads of the, these programs mm-hmm. leading with that kind of cynicism. Yeah. Also thinking about the idea of like just the idea of cut programs which i also know is something alex wanted to talk about in this episode yeah oh sure yeah yeah, yeah. and just like the ethics of that i guess and like the message that sends i think a cut program is i mean there are so many programs now that are not cut programs that used to be Mm -hmm. when i was auditioning at emerson i think they were doing away with the cut program because i remember asking about it and i because i got in and i was like oh should i go I didn't. And uh, which is nothing against that school. I actually just Mm -hmm. worked with a couple of people from Emerson and had a great time working with them. And it's always interesting to me. I think it's very easy to listen to an episode like this and go, oh, maybe they're just jaded because they didn't have a good experience as opposed to realizing that like I'm offering a critique of a system that disadvantaged me. But at the time when I was in college, I was on top of the world. I thought that I was in the best place. I thought that I was doing great work. I thought that I was establishing myself as an artist. Whatever the Kool-Aid was, I drank it by the gallon full, you know, like, and because that's what I knew to do. I wanted to absorb. I wanted to be a good artist. I wanted to trust that my teachers were going to get me there. And that was naive, you know, like if I, if I'd taken a couple years off in the middle and gone to work and maybe done a few shows even community theater shows but like had the opportunity to exercise my craft outside the structures excuse me of an institution would I have learned enough to be able to come in with with a center of gravity around my artistry that would have allowed me to take all these opinions with grains of salt and I met so many people like through the course of like working with so many folks and some people really loved their programs and maybe it was because they got a lot out of it or maybe it's because their rose colored glasses are still on could be some of both like you know there are many people that will have great experiences I was one of the people that like in school I was like one of the air quotes favorites I was like had the I had a great experience I was always working on a show I was always cast I was always getting the most time in class because I was a hard worker and that was rewarded and at the same time was the work that I was getting from you know my professors was the the teaching was it actually useful for me unfortunately the answer for a lot of it was no and I spent a lot of time unpacking it 
I had fabulous acting teachers. The two women that were my acting teachers are still friends to this day. And they really instilled a love of creativity and of play within me. And they were also the first people that said, all right, we're going to, why don't you do Juliet instead of Romeo and see how it feels because it doesn't matter. It's just class. And so this is permission to like, I'm going to cast you in something in class that feels akin to who you are as a person, gender not specified. And she did that with many people in our class. And all of a sudden, everyone was starting to find their own voice and rhythm in the work that they were doing. And then it was pick material that speaks to you. I don't care if it's accurate to who you are. That's not an excuse to do something racist. You know what I mean? But like, that is an opportunity to go, okay, play a 60 year old man. Who gives a fuck if it's a great monologue? Like, come in, let's work on it. And you do it in high school all the time. And you do it in high school all the time anyway. It's like, we're 20. There there are so few roles for like 20 year olds on Broadway. Better substantial. Better substantial. Oh my God. I remember it was so funny. I was in uh, callbacks for Three Tall Women my senior year of college. Mm-hmm. Um, I It was so wild. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm like going to be considered to be in the same room as Laurie Metcalf. You know what I mean? like, and I was in to play the son who famously in Three Tall Women does not speak. And so mm-hmm. I was like, I did all this work on my monologues and I'm, I'm not even, what am I going to do in this audition? Like, you know, right. like, so it's like when we finally do have like a 25 year old on Broadway, they don't even speak. Like, you know? Yeah. Anyway, all of that oh. to say there was, there was so much of my training that did instill a love of theater, my dance teachers, especially, and still the love of creativity. The people that were in charge of my voice mainly the folks that were like in charge of song analysis where you would like learn how to sing your song in front of a piano for 30 minutes of a master class every day that was where you know a lot of the like crap happened where it was like okay but what's my version of this piece not the version Mm. you want to have created not the version you think is a you know broadway leading whatever what is my version of that and our community gets really caught up on like what is unique versus what's just interesting and weird And there's room for both. Like you can be interesting and weird and be a lead on Broadway. In fact, I think that's cool. That's why we have plays like Sweeney Todd. You know what I mean? Like no Sondheim character is normal and that's why we love them all, right? Like they're all a little bit offbeat because that's the way that the, the construction of those musicals work. And, and they have to be, and we are offbeat as people, like nobody's on beat, like that's the whole point of being a person. And so how do we find my offbeatness and pair that with the music, the piece, the styling? That was not what was taught. It was, this is the way this piece goes. And I just, I mean, I was a hellion. I fought that tooth nail. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I disagree. Here's why. It's so interesting. Cause one of the thing, one of the bullet points we have in our outline is about a criticism that's often raised against like acting mm. education specifically and yeah. it's like yes that yeah it and it's it's so great to hear that like you had sort of you had the opposite experience of that and you had like such wonderful acting teachers I did yeah I was so lucky <laughs> and it's it's so interesting though also and, and it kind of makes sense in a way that it's like music has rules it does in a way that acting doesn't and so there's mm. like like well people have like for classical people have tried theory. people have tried to put rules on acting for sure people have different yes, versions but I of mean, their own literal rules. like classical music the way yes. you write it the yes, way yes, chords yes. are structured music theory like has mm-hmm. rules mm-hmm. and there's um so it makes sense that like to a degree that the music education would be more rigid in yeah. a way. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it was but the acting it's through like, the song that was so rigid. That's, that's missing. what was weird. And yeah. right, it's like the 
they taught the music and they taught the acting and they didn't bring them together. No, it's, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. And it was interesting because like the, many of the song analysis teachers that I had, some of them had been like working actors longer than they had been teachers. But my acting teachers had gone to school to learn how to teach. And that's mm -hmm. very different. And mm -hmm. one of the big, one of the big things that NYU specifically does is bring in working professionals constantly because yep. they're just up the street. And I think there's incredible value in that, especially to have them as directors, to have them as master classes, to have them as, you know, I abhor the word master class, but you know, you know what I mean mm. when I say that, to have them as guest instructors, perhaps. Yes, you mean Audrey McDonald's yes. and Tyndale. <laughs> of course, absolutely. Oh my gosh, yes. Ugh. Wow. <laughs> dream role anyway um <laughs> like to, to have that access is really helpful and useful especially when you're thinking about like career building and brand building and like these are folks that are actively doing it so they have their their finger on the pulse of the industry the way that not all you know theater teachers will and I found that the people that had spent time learning how to teach, how to cultivate a safe space in the classroom, how to cultivate inclusion, how to look at who I was as a person and figure out the way to bring that most forward in the pieces I was doing, they were the ones that spoke to me best. I also think, and I wish if I could go back and maybe tell myself anything in college, um, there's a couple of things I'd say, but the, the maybe the most important one that is transferable to other people, not just like individual situations I found myself <laughs> running amok with, but the idea that we treat all of our professors' opinions as if they were the word of like God themselves, you know? Oh my God. Because yes. I found that I butt heads all the time with one of the teachers that I didn't like his art. I had seen it. It was not my taste. I had never shared an opinion on a musical with this man in my life. And then I was taking notes from him in class being like, oh, yeah. maybe he's right. And of course it never felt right because the way that he interpreted and saw art was not the way that I interpreted and saw art. But then my I acting had teacher- such a similar experience. Right? Yes. Yes, did you? Yeah, yeah, I had similar experiences. And I think, oh, so wow. I think, I'm sorry, I'm thinking it's probably a universal experience. You're right, we should not be taking our professor's word as law. They are not God. Right. But yet we are set up to believe that. I, and I think that we are set up to believe that from like, the high school pre-screening days. If we are taught how to be subservient. We are not taught how to create. Yes. But I think it is, as you said, more universal than not. I think mm -hmm. that we, what I find myself terrified of is the amount of professors that have the answers because I never learned something valuable that I keep to this day from a professor who had the answers. But I, I learned the most from the professors that knew what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's what I found because I've worked with some amazing directors and I've worked with some, I've worked with some amazing directors. You know I mean? like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the amazing directors are the ones that look at you and know what question to ask you as an actor to get you to the next point, as opposed to saying, mm, okay, I think it's this, you know, like I, I worked with, I did two different pieces this summer and I had two opposite experiences with the directors. I'll just, I'll say that much. And I, every day that I would come in with the director who knew how to ask the questions, oh my God, I learned so much. I felt like I got a new BFA because I would watch these seasoned actors, seasoned professionals, people whose voices on cast recordings I grew up listening to acting and answering the questions by doing it and not just debating about it. They would go, 
okay, let me try something. And then they'd try something and then it would fail miserably. And they would laugh and be like, I learned something. Let me try it again. And I was like, what? It can be what like What an this? amazing room. I <laughs> yeah. love Oh that. my God. It was an amazing room. I was maybe one of three people that wasn't on, had not been on Broadway on this regional contract. I was just like, I was living my best life being <laughs> in an environment where I got to learn every day. Especially I understudied one of the leads. So I was like, I got to be around the environment a lot because I had responsibility you know what I mean so mm-hmm, it was like mm-hmm. accepted that I would be in there and the questions weren't being posed to me but I was getting to see the process so like that was just delicious and that's what I feel like our program should have been like we were taught and I know many people are taught this too it's like the breakdown your bad habits in your freshman year thing and you like lay on the floor and like moan into like your left kidney for a while and like find yeah. find your voice yeah. in your pelvis. You know, I mean, the amount of times that my speech and diction teacher was like, breathe through your vagina. And I was like, why is this like gender affirming to me? I don't understand. That's literally, that just unlocked a memory of Kristen Chenoweth on Ellen. Oh my God. Yeah. She says the same thing. Oh yeah. That's breathe so through your hoo-ha. Yeah. Yeah. That was the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh I remember God. seeing that yeah. and being like, wait, I know that. <laughs> But like, instead of that, what if we came in with like, okay, let's play, let's try something experimental. This is where we're going to go because like the amount of people that get the absolute creative life kicked out of them through a program that is supposed to be like a top-notch artistic program is Mm -hmm. way too many. Yep. I've seen it happen to so many people. Well, Um, and what's sad, what's sad is that in those instances, they often leave the industry. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that staying in the industry would have actually been a really good place for them. I and agree. Now they're never gonna that's know. And now they're never okay. Gonna that's know. a really good place to pause and do our little intermission. College may be really expensive no matter what you study, but you know what's not super expensive? Our Patreon tiers. They start at just $5 with our thank you five tier and go up to $100. Which is our comp offer, where we will take you to a show and go out for a little drink afterwards to talk about it. And then a couple other options in between. And in addition to that, Patreon just introduced a new join for free option that is now available on our page. And so if you head to patreon.com slash partialviewpod and click the join for free button, that will get you signed up to our brand new email list, which we will be launching in a couple months. And it will get you a little bit of, you know, extra content, enhanced show notes, and some other fun goodies that we're, we're figuring out and we're developing for you all. Yeah, so check us out at patreon.com slash partialviewpod if you want to follow along with our episodes. And before we head back into the episode with James, big thank you to our current patron, Sharon Stritch. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Sharon. And back to the episode. I think maybe my number one reason not to go to a BFA is not because of the trauma that you're going to endure. Like, you know, anybody who goes to any program for college to grow up is to experience trauma and to learn how to handle it. And that sounds like a cynical worldview, but it's like, it's a truth. We all Mm -hmm. like have traumatic things that happen to us and we 
learn hopefully how to deal with them hopefully we are resourced in a way where we can work through those things college though is really really fucking expensive and mm-hmm, yeah. like if i was not, new york city is fucking oh my god expensive. if i was not the scholarship Ugh. one of the scholarship kids my year like i would never have been able to afford it but one of the reasons i went to the school that i did was because it was the most affordable school because i was like you know, it just hit the nexus of like artistic and academic scholarship stuff. And so it made it affordable for me, but there is no reason there is simply, there is simply no program good enough to take all of your money, put you in such massive debt that you'll never make back in an industry where we don't make yeah, money not at all, you know? And it's also, absolutely. um, re- like, God, what was it that we were saying before? Um, oh, the idea that like, you're trying to lock a 17 year old into a type when yeah. they're 17. Like what the hell is that? That's crazy. But it's also that's actually, crazy. that's actually a huge part of the reason I stopped performing mm-hmm. actually. But I was saying it's also crazy that we even make students choose a major. Yeah. Yeah. It's really like, pretty ridiculous. Like, um, and it's worse. Like I remember finding out that like, um, the, now I don't remember what the exams are called, but the exams in the UK. Oh, the A-levels? The A-levels. Yeah. Um, like, you're having to choose specializations then. Like, it's even earlier. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things that I ever learned um, when I was, I don't remember when it was. It must have been maybe, like, early in college and I was talking to someone and they had, like, an older sibling who'd already finished school or mm. whatever. But... Um, was just like coming to the realization that what you major in in college doesn't actually dictate your career path. Not at all. And that there are people who are English majors who work as bank tellers and people who, you know, things that are even more far apart than those things. And like, I, which really helped, just really helped me feel like free to just explore what I was interested in totally totally I mean it's so funny it's like I do use all the degrees that I got in school but not the things I learned in school necessarily from those degrees the hard facts not the hard facts of that like I was telling Danielle the other night too when I was a senior in high school and I was like I'm gonna study performance but Mm. I need a double major because I'm just I I that was just always yeah. what I wanted to do is like it wasn't even like to have a backup plan it was just because I was like I have other interests but what that did was that actually really limited the schools that I could apply to for acting or musical theater or whatever because mm-hmm. so many of them are not supportive of you doing anything else during your time there no they're it's like well it's too demanding and so you can maybe you can minor but like you cannot double major so like i uh, immediately the list of schools that i was going to apply to diminished by like 80 percent yeah nyu is one of the few that lets you it is yeah yeah i got yeah yeah, yeah. two minors and started a master's while i was there but it was because Whoa. i tested out of everything you know what I mean because I had Which done all you this. can't do anymore <laughs> I don't know about that maybe maybe you're right maybe you can't do that anymore a lot of a lot of schools aren't taking standardized test scores for credit anymore interesting like APs I yeah oh interesting I also like I tested out of like half the theory and like oral skills and like keyboard mm-hmm. and all that stuff too because like I had a music mm. degree so I had to do theory oral yeah. skills keyboard all that stuff 
I tested out as AP much Music of it. Theory. AP Music Theory. I took that. Loved it. I loved yeah. that. I wish I had. I wish I had, and I yeah. didn't. But my school did offer it. Um, but yeah, so like thinking about the skills that you mm-hmm. learn in a BFA or a BM mm-hmm. or any of these programs. It's like, so we know, and we have already been talking about how those are skills that are transferable to other areas. They are, yeah. Very transferable. Yeah. Do you Mm -hmm. feel like you're taught that they're transferable? Not necessarily, because the focus isn't on transferring Mm. the skills. Um, Mm. I think, well, it's really interesting too. Like a lot of the skills that I feel like I learned in school were not like performance-based skills. Like what I learned was how to stand up for myself. What I learned was how to diplomatically... Mm you know, try to have a conversation with authority figures that I didn't agree with. What I learned was how to socialize with people that politically were misaligned with me. What I learned was how bureaucracy works. What I learned was that the theater isn't glamorous. And what I learned by being in New York was that like, it's enormous. And this is like the vibe of it always and a bit constantly changing. And I learned that everyone is deeply insecure. And those things are actually Mm. very useful to learn in a program. I also learned a lot of like technical things that were helpful because I started late. So like, I just didn't know a lot of like theater Mm -hmm. history necessarily. I didn't Mm -hmm. know a lot of like the history of music specifically where like things I I was interested in learning, like my child, not a less mental health studies degree. I fucking loved that. I mean, like to dissect human brains as like my final and like label all the parts and know what they did and why. And like, how that's that, a wild it was awesome i didn't know that was even part of that program wow. i kind of looked yeah. at that because i almost double majored in psych really so i was looking at all the psych and like psychology adjacent things it was the best that is crazy but that i used great. a lot of that because we learned how children develop their brains and so we learned how trauma manifests in the body and what is every play about how trauma <laughs> manifests in your body yeah. and so i was able to be like neuroscience nerd and be like okay, let's look at the glass menagerie. You know what I mean? Like from this perspective, let's look at mm-hmm. that. This is exactly what we're, Alex and I are always yelling about when we <laughs> when the topic of the like, if you can see yourself doing anything else, go do that comes no. up. Because yeah. these interests that are quote unquote outside of the scope of mm-hmm. theater inform your work in theater and yeah. make you a more well-rounded artist. And so the fact that it's so discouraged by these programs, that it's double so majoring wild. is impossible, that you're told that if you're, or even if you're not told directly, it's heavily implied. Totally. If you're not giving 150% of your blood, sweat, tears, time, energy, whatever, to your craft. It's and such an moment, unhealthy mindset. That you yeah. are. Yeah. Failing yourself and failing the program and like should leave. I was not. Yes. Crazy. I would I would just love to know in your program, in your cohort, your year. Mm -hmm. Was Broadway the goal for every single person? Yes and no. It was interesting. I went to school with a lot of people who were very, very, very wealthy. And I didn't have a concept of this at the time. So many of them, I suspect, were just doing it because they were good at it. And like. It was so funny. There, The amount of people my senior year that were starting to panic because they had to get a job because they were going to get cut off from their parents, but they had never worked a job before. Oh my God. Was okay. nuts. One of somebody in my, the class above me, she was gifted a $1.5 million apartment as a graduation gift. 
congrats on graduating one of the most expensive universities in the world. Here's an apartment in insert rich neighborhood in New York. Like that. So that gives you a level of like, it's not, and I'm not saying funny as a $1.5 million apartment. You're like, it's maybe a one bedroom. probably To have that as an expendable thing to give as a Mm -hmm. gift to a child that has, you have many other kids to like, that is an unfathomable amount of wealth to me. I did not grow oh, up with that. And so, and this is not a, a criticism of any of those people so much as I found that those of us that didn't come from the same socioeconomic class were very driven. I found those of us who didn't come from that same socioeconomic privilege and were working, I worked three jobs to get through school and I was on massive scholarship. And so I, I understood the value of like the hard work as it pertained to me achieving my goals. That was my goal. You know, Broadway was my goal. And those of us that were in kind of a similar boat, that was our goal. For other people, I think it was their goal, but they didn't come at it as hard. They did not know, they had. They just had a different experience. Their relationship to working for something so hard was completely different. And so it's difficult to gauge what the ambition was because when you are padded with such a luxurious life, you don't want in the same way that other people yearn and like and deeply desire the drive. Like I knew I was, and this never happened because I never got anything less than an A, but I was like, I am one bad semester away from getting knocked off my scholarship. I had to reappeal every year for additional financial aid to like pay things, like, you know what I mean? To like pay for school. Like, you know, my parents like refinanced the house type of situation to like pay for. And that was something that I was acutely aware of. Hey, that's a privilege in its own right. I, I, you know, to be middle-class is a privilege. And at the same time, comparatively to the $1.5 million apartment as a gift, what a different world we live in, right? And so I didn't see people have the same drive if their goal was the same. Does that make sense? It does. I just was thinking a lot about how like I, we went to liberal arts colleges and in, Mm -hmm. in a single major, like in a cohort, I'm even thinking of like my American studies cohort year at Barnard. We all had different goals, you know, like we all had a wide variety of goals. Some people wanted to go to law school. Some people wanted to go into like nonprofit administration. Some people didn't know what they wanted to do. Some people were like, I'm going to take a year off and then maybe go to med school. Like there's just like a wide variety of what you want and like where you're going. It's so tunnel visioned. And I just thought, I just wanted to ask about that because I... I find that very interesting. But that also, that's interesting because that that relates to, like, did anybody in the program have any sort of creative aspirations outside of performing? Like, was anyone interested in writing? Was anyone interested in directing? Just like any other artistic discipline within theater or just like within the arts? Because I wonder like how much even that level of, I don't know, like, dedication quote unquote yeah quote unquote dedication quote unquote being goal focused totally i in my experience from what i remember and i could be you know misremembering some things here and there everybody who had another interest like producing or being on the business side of things or being a talent manager that was only if acting didn't work out you know, that was the, the air quotes fallback plan. Mm. However, and I forgot that I did this. I went back to, I didn't go back to school. I took, uh, I did NYU Stone Streets film and TV program mm-hmm. over a summer. I did their summer intensive. I 
loved it because our classes were so varied. I got great technique out of it. I'd been working a little bit like as a, you know, like doing film stuff and I wanted to get better at it because my agents were like, you know, hey, we can really start to push you for some of this stuff. Let's get a reel together if that's something you're really interested in. Because I had come to them and been like, I want to be on TV. And they were like, okay, great. Here's how we can help you get there. And um, I, I went back to that program and our curriculum was, uh, you wrote your own material. You uh, did other people's material as your movies. You wrote your own monologues sometimes. You wrote stuff with each other. You wrote comedy sketches with each other. You directed each other. We had a class where you had to do every single job and it would rotate like every week. So one day you'd be the gaffer, then you'd be the director, then you'd be the AC, then you'd be the um, cinematographer, then you would be the, oh my gosh, what's the person who holds the camera? The DP, the director of photography. And I learned all of those skills. We all learned all of those skills in that class. And then people were like, I like being the DP. I'm, I'm really excited about this. And then they would be like, I don't want to be in one of these acting pieces. I want to be the DP on all the films. And so then, then they get to do that. You know what I mean? So or cool. people would be like, I really think I want to write more. And so then we'd be like, okay, then let's like write a piece. Let's make this our thesis project. And like, let's have these folks write it. You know what I mean? Like it was so much more multi-hyphenate collaborative in that way. I think I got really lucky because my cohort was super, super multi-hyphenate, like very open and like really cool, exciting brains. I mean, I truly feel like the future of TV and film was in, you know, the Steinhardt 20 or the Stone Street 2021, like TV film class. <laughs> um, and I, I loved them as human beings as well, which is not to say I didn't love like my college class. There are so many people that I do love from my, from my, you know, BM class, but to go in. And of course I was coming back at this. I was like 25, which is very different than being 18. You know what I mean? And so I was coming mm-hmm. in knowing what I wanted out of it. And we enriched each other's art because our teachers were like, because TV film is so expansive. It's like, we can just write you something. If you don't see something that's out there, let's just write it. You know what I mean? And like that, that permission, we don't have that in theater. You can't just write a song you like, you know what I mean? But you no, can go because like write a two minute the, the scene. Playwright, the playwright in theater is God. Like the True. script mm-hmm. is. And it's not in TV film, especially in like sitcom in work. Film, it's like, not at all. Absolutely. Like they'll throw new lines at you on set. On set. Nothing. Yeah. And I, the amount of auditions that I've been in, I've gotten multiple jobs because I looked at it and I was like, do you want me to be word perfect? Or do you want me to treat, see if I can really act this material? And some people like, like Amy Sherman Palladino, you better be word perfect. Word she perfect. wrote them for a reason. <laughs> and because she is, it's not that she's pedantic in a bad way. It's that she is so hyper-specific about the world that she's building. You and must get really the rhythmic. words right. It's rhythmic. It's rich. Gilmore Girls was a masterpiece for that reason. Every monologue is a meal, right? But Mm -hmm. then, uh, okay, if you're working with like the Levy family on something because they're, you know, whatever they're doing after Schitt's Creek or whatever, you know what I mean? That might be a like, here's the beginning and the end. Get there. You know what I mean? in the middle. Uh Uh-huh. And I work really well with that because Mm -hmm. I love finding the chemistry with another actor and like figuring out what we're doing. But I was given that space to play. And so then other people found they loved stand-up comedy instead. And so now there's stand-up comics. Like that program, I think, actually really did nourish the different kinds of artists that people wanted to be because there was opportunity. Like I, the reason I have this like voiceover setup is because I had a voiceover teacher in Stone Street that was like, you're really good at this. You should make a demo and I'll send it to some people. And then I signed with an agency and then I did commercial. You know what I mean? Like that was great. I didn't know that was an option for me. It wasn't something I like dreamed of, but 
it is an option, but like, why don't we have that in BFA programs? <laughs> right. Why don't yeah, we have the amazing. options to do the arts sampler? Like you can like yes. something else and it's actually yeah. really good. Like don't stay standing on stage if that's not where you want to be. Like, Or like do that if it is where you want to be, but you mm-hmm. don't have to only want to be and do that. I love the way yes. you said that. You don't and have to like, only want this. You can want a lot of things. And yeah. the more things you're able to do, honestly, I think the better it's becoming. Because what we're what I'm finding, and I wonder if this has been your both of your experiences, the the crowd that's my age, I'm 28. And so the group that's around oh my God, 10 years ago I was in college. <laughs> weird. Um when I turn over oh my God, it's the weirdest feeling. Yeah. This year was my 10 year college reunion. I didn't go, but oh my like God. 10 years. Nuts. <laughs> I'm 33, and so so I started at NYU as a freshman in 2008. So okay. it's like I mm. just hit 15 years of living in the city. Oh wow! And that's so like weird. that's that's just a milestone. Yeah. Where was I going with this? I don't even remember. I don't know. Sorry, we were no. Both it's just okay. Like, oh, time reminiscing. Oh, I'm saying that like the people my age, I find the majority of creatives that are working consistently, and consistent work is not the marker of success. But the people who are consistently fueled by this, meaning they keep coming back to the industry because it nourishes them in some way, they're the multi hyphenates. The people that I know that are like, yeah, I'm acting in this, and then I'm going to go stage manage that thing. Oh, yeah, I I am going to like help out and be like the reader for these auditions for my friend. And then I'm going to go back home and continue writing my play. Like um, there's, I can't think of who this person's name is. Somebody who's listening will know there's an agent. That's also an actor, which is very mm-hmm. new. Like we've not seen that kind of crossover before, you know, it's like, this is right. a person who has their own agency and then they're signed as an actor to another agency. Right. Like, mm, that's you know, really cool, it's really cool. Yeah. I mean, like, and I think that that's, there should be more of that in my opinion because absolutely or mm-hmm. like just flexibility for that because it's like I brought this I've brought this up in the past there's um somebody who I don't remember their name um who was in I believe Ain't No Mo on Broadway I mean Jordan E. Cooper wrote it and was in it that's not who I'm talking about there oh. was somebody who was in it who yeah was also working at like had a full-time job in admin at New York Theater Workshop and really? they gave her the flexibility to go do the Broadway <gasps> production. That's amazing. And keep her job. It was in her bio in the playbill. Like And I've gotten over there amazing. so I can it's go like, see it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I, I could go look. Um right, like that's incredible, right? And it's like I know someone at only at only theater center who also has a full time job, but then he was like, I'm gonna go up to New York and do Caroline or Change on Broadway and they like worked it out. Mm. I yeah. love that. And it's like I worked in my my current job is at a nonprofit that doesn't happen to be in theater. But prior to this and prior to when I went to grad school, um, I was working in non like off Broadway arts administration full time and producing on the side and freelancing yeah. as a dramaturg and doing uh, all these other things. And those are things that I'm still continuing to do, yes. except now because I have a job that is not in theater i make a living wage Mm. and so now the like side hustle freelancing can actually be driven by creative goals and interest and desire rather than financial necessity Mm -hmm. and that's a whole new world that's wonderful 
I'm finding, and I, I love to hear that, and I'm finding that the folks that are doing that or the folks that are just like multi-hyphen, it's especially there's so many actor producers now, which I love because it's yes. all the folks that are like, I hate how I was treated by the producers I've worked for. And so I'm going to go be the change. I'm not going to wait for y'all to figure it out. I'm going to go be it. And I'm going to go set the example. That That's so hot to me. I love it. Keep doing it. Yes. <laughs> and I find that the folks that are multi-hyphen, it's, I would hope this rings true. It has been my experience that they are the people that are most welcoming. They are the easiest to work with because they know what your job is because they might've even done it. And like Mm -hmm. that can easily get into the like paternalistic Mm -hmm. overbearing territory, or it can go to the like, Hey, I was also once a stage manager. Is there anything that I can do to make your life easier? You know what I mean? Hey, I know that it's really difficult to produce the things and I've got, you know, I, I'm, I've thought of a solution. Can I run it by you? Is that cool? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much more understanding of like what the roles are and how we make this function. And that does give me some hope for change. Mm, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wish that was uh, that kind of curiosity yeah fostered is fostered more in these programs and that's kind of back to yeah i was gonna say it's kind of coming back to like education is reacting to the industry oh yes yeah yeah so hopefully with more change in the industry at large we'll have professors and administrators coming in who also welcome that i absolutely agree and i think what you said about um you said something about i don't remember a creative freedom or something like that and it reminded me of like how much this work is about being with your inner child and like letting that person be free to, to create and to envision things and, and try them out and play. And I thought about um, earlier, we were talking about using your degree or not using your degree and, you know, kind of what a false sense of security, the idea of like, if you get a biology degree, you'll use it and it'll be valuable. You know what I mean? As opposed to if you get a BFA in studio art, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. I, I really think, I would flip all of that on its head and say that if you don't invest any time in the arts as a person, you stifle your inner child, you, and I don't know anybody who is devoid of artistic connection and is fulfilled. The only people that I know that are suffering are the people that are not as connected to that artistry. I mean, within our industry, you know what I mean? And you can say this with authority as somebody who studied child and adolescent mental health. (laughs) I guess that's true. Yeah. I mean, but I think about that all the time. I'm like, you know, I, cause I worked at NYU's admissions team when I was a student there, it was one of my jobs Mm. and I would talk to people all the time and it would always be the concerned dad with like the, you know, 15 year old daughter that wanted to come to Tish because she wanted to be the next Sutton Foster. And the dad was like, I'm afraid she won't have work. And I was like, great. So now you know what to do to help her if you're financially able to. I said, what I would love to instill a fear in you is that if you and your daughter butt heads on this, you're going to fracture your relationship with her and she is not going to have the relationship she deserves with her art. I was like, I want that to be a prime fear. I said, because as long as, you know, if you're able to support her and she knows she always has a home to go to, that's a good place. But if you, if you two fracture your relationship over this, that's going to be really tough. And I've seen it happen so many times to so many people. And I just, I don't want that for anyone. You know, whether you use your musical theater degree or not, if you're able to gain something out of the process of learning about yourself as an artist, to be an artist is to live in your own body with presence constantly. That takes so much self-awareness, maturity, dedication, Mm -hmm. drive, empathy, 
passion, grace, forgiveness. Like how many of those skills and qualities are transferable? How many people in corporate America feel like they have a great handle on those skills? How many people with their accounting degrees are going, God, I really learned forgiveness for myself doing actuarial science, you know? Like this is why there are so many programs that go bring like improv workshops to corporations. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's like, you don't know how to be in your body or how to Mm -hmm. interact without a PowerPoint behind you. And I think the problem with the BFA culture is that we were we were demanded to be in our bodies. We were not given a safe container to be in. Mm. Mm. It is trauma work. You are, I mean, the amount of- Yes, that's what we were saying. I was starting to say earlier, like about how the most frequent criticism of this sort of higher education, like acting training you hear is like, oh, like people who have graduated looking back and reflecting on, and this is like all over TikTok too. I've seen it constantly as people being like, it is- fucked up that I was forced to stand up in front of my class at nine o'clock in the morning and like mm-hmm. divulge and talk about my trauma my yeah. biggest traumas for the sake of what mm-hmm. I remember I, as, I refused oh, I refused to talk about my personal shit in directing class didn't get a good grade don't fucking care good for you I shouldn't have ha- I shouldn't have been asked I remember no, you shouldn't have been asked and nobody should be. And I understand, I understand where the logical fallacy in this. And I wish I could shake every college professor and, and, and drill this into their brains. I, it is low hanging fruit to go after what is most emotionally potent for the actor, because it is a well that runs dry. If I am using my personal trauma to try to unearth some emotion, that's a problem with the writing the process, if, if I'm not able to get to where I need to be because I don't understand the writing, that's an actor interpretation issue. If the writing is subpar, that's a writing issue. If the environment is not conducive and safe enough for me to go there, wherever there is, that's an environmental issue. None of those things have to do with whether or not I'm connected to my personal trauma. I mean, and I won't go into like detail about this because I'm not going to trauma dump on the podcast. One of the main things that I went through was being, it was nine in the morning. I was one of the only queer people in my program. And my professor was maybe 10 years older than I was. And everybody else would like be singing their song. You know, they'd be singing Mr. Snow. Okay, pick a partner. And, you know, like, you know, somebody would pick their friend and they would sing to their friend because it's normal to like need a scene partner for a song, right? Every time I would go up, he would have me sing to him. And I was the only person who ever had to do that. And half the time it'd be like, change the pronouns to a man and like sing to me. And I would, I did that for two years, two and a half years. I did that. And it wrecked me. I am in intensive EMDR therapy, ferreting out this man's voice from my psyche, divorcing his influence from my artistic abilities. And that's normalized in in artistic culture. And it wasn't until I had a fabulous director, I was doing Hedwig, and um, I got to really exercise this. I was very scared to do a solo show because when I was doing shows with other people, I had other actors, I had other stimuli to constantly be going in my brain. So I could get that professor's voice out of my head pretty quickly when it came in. When I was doing Hedwig, the whole point was I didn't let anyone else speak because Hedwig's such a such a bitch. And so like she just wouldn't like, and my Yitzhak was amazing. The band was amazing. Mm-hmm. Our music director was top notch. I mean, this was the coolest, best team. And of course I had to play my role, right? And I was so scared of this voice coming into my head. 
And what I did was not that this is, you know, an acting exercise rooted in any sort of um, theory so much as one that I just kind of adopted uh, a little bit more from film school than anything, because, you know, a lot of times you're doing a sitcom, you're doing a gossip girl scene, you don't like you relate to it, but like not really, because it's just kind of like, like, oh my God, like, no, I'm going to go to it later. No, I think I'm going to, I'm sorry. Like I shouldn't have done it like that. You know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) It's like, like, it's normal conversation. You're not digging deep into the trenches. You're not doing check off. You're doing gossip girl. And so when I was doing Hedwig, I fabricated so much of the story in my head. Like who, who Tommy Gnosis was, what the place looked like. I I went through the details of all of this to create a container that I could step into that was so vivid to me, but wasn't based on my lived experience. So every night I would go do this healing from abuse, being the abuser and perpetrator and victim play, which is a hard mental space to be in for 90 minutes while singing 12 rock songs and having, you know, no breaks, (laughs) never leaving the stage. That's a hard place to be in. I thrived. Like you can't believe I was at the top of what I felt like my game was at the time because I made a container that I could step in and step out of. And when I walked out of the stage door, it was not my trauma on stage. It was someone else's story. And that was not what we were taught in college at all. It's not what is taught. Our, Our safety, our mental health is not prioritized. It is looked upon as a fallacy if you are not able to upchuck your deepest mental you're health just not issues. strong enough to succeed in this field like yeah. that's the that's yeah, yeah, ridiculous yeah. what <laughs> again it's entwining the personal and the professional in a deeply unhealthy way deeply unhealthy way deeply unhealthy way mm. and i think and that, educational yeah yes and it's like what how is this learning when i mean and it's different so like i'm a writer as well and they say write what you know but the idea of writing is that you put it down And you're not living in it. You're not living that story all of the time. You're writing it down and letting it go, letting it live as its own thing. And then it becomes something that speaks to someone else, right? It's just like, it's a little time capsule. Did you come to writing while you were still in college or did it come later? No, I've always been a writer. Um, It was, (laughs) I thought about doing a creative writing degree while I was in school. I've been a writer longer than I've been an actor. And words have always been my love language. As you can tell, I use them, you know, I just use a ton of them. <laughs> and uh, I mean, Alex and I are both dramaturgs, so you're yeah. in good company with yeah. that. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm not a playwright. I am like a mm. book person. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, cool. and I'm not a songwriter either. There are so many people that have gifts for lyrics. <laughs> not me. <laughs> I just saw Gatsby, the paper mill one. Oh, a paper mill. Um, yeah, so I had just worked with Kate Kerrigan on uh, a reading. Kate. Oh my we've, god, we've worked, with, we've worked with Kate before, both of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? we're big okay, fans. Great. Yay! Kate, I Kate mean, and Kate, Brie, I love that. Kate and Brie were like part of the reason I got into musical theater, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, so the show that I just did at Fifty Four Below, Brie was the music director. Like, she played the show. It was the the yeah. dream. Like, that's the artistic goal. That's the goal. It's not Broadway. It's to be doing a show. <laughs> and Brie Loudermilk says, "Yeah, I want to. I want to create music with you." And you go. What? <gasps> Um, yes, so we went and yes. saw, we went and saw the first dress of Gatsby at Paper Mill. It was, we, we didn't leave that theater until 1148. Like, you know That's what I amazing. Mean? And, uh, because, oh, it was great. And what I was talking to Kate about is like, because she is a lyricist and I think her lyrics are really, really wonderful. I loved being Stunning. in a workshop I, with her oh, to yeah. act those words, but then seeing her as a book writer as well. I was like, these are such yeah. transferable skills. Like, yes. you know, especially yeah. a musical like because Gatsby, which is notoriously misogynistic to have her voice Mm -hmm. on that Mm oh yeah so often playwrights who have never worked 
on a musical try and write the (laughs) book of a musical and it's like they're great writers but if you don't understand musical theater structure and song structure and lyric and storytelling and lyrics then your book isn't gonna flow with the lyrics exactly and it often flows like a movie and it's yeah really disappointing totally totally Um, we did. A, I, Alex, I love the final question that you put in the outline. I do, too. This this is born out of I went to a um, I went to a fancy prep school in New England and okay. it's a fancy all it's a fancy all girls prep school. And we get this question all the time, mm. which is, would you send your child to this all girls prep school, another all girls school, another prep school? Would would you knowing what you know about how things have evolved, send your kid here. And so the question is, if you had a child of your own or a child in your life that you cared about, would you want to see them go through one of these intensive BM, BFA programs? If there was a young person that really wanted to do this, who am I to stand in their way? Um, I think that it would be a disservice to them to say that I know better what they want. I think a lot about the first time I heard of childism, I thought it was ridiculous and stupid. Um, And then I started to hear more about it and how we treat children and we oppress them through the idea that we know better than they do and that we are smarter than them and that they cannot be autonomous people with their own choices and, and be aware of the choices that they're making and the consequences of them. That is not to say they deserve adult problems. That is to say that kids are smart and young people know what they want and they are formulating a worldview that's highly specified. And we are seeing a maturation of young people with like the globalization of the world through technology that I think has to be respected. And so I would say it would be against my politic to stop them from doing something just because it wasn't right for me or because I had a harmful experience. I think it would also be I would be remiss if we didn't have a conversation about it of like, this is, you know, the things that I experience. This is the way I understand it. How does this fit with your politics? You know, like if I talked to them as a person and they said, you know, oh, I understand that and I, I want to do this and this is what I need to do, then I would say go for it. And I would hope, like I think every parent hopes, that the people who were taking care of this young person had their best interests in mind. And what I would really hope, and I would only be able to learn this in practice, is that I would have established enough of a relationship with this person, whether it was like my biological kid or like somebody that I just care about. Like, I would hope I would have established enough of a relationship to where if something were to go sour, they would feel safe enough to come to me and not feel like I would shame them for making the decision and not point fingers at them, not blame them, that I could be a safe, a safe enough person for them to come to, to help them find a solution, to be a listening ear, to be a mentor, whatever was necessary in that moment. Maybe it's just to be a friend, you know, like, I think about that now. I'm friends with my parents, you know, like people mm-hmm. choose whether they want to be friends with their parents or not. I like my I'm friends with them. But like as an adult, like you become friends with your kid or you don't. And so I think even with all of the the crap, it's like that young person's gonna experience crap wherever they go and whatever they do. I want it to, I want them to have the autonomy to choose the version that they want. I want them to be informed yeah. and I want them to be educated on this so they can make the decision because. I remember I, when I was 18, I was, I knew exactly what I wanted and I did make the right decision. It was a painful one that cost me things. But at the time I didn't know that it was painful and was costing me things. And it's also that like, 
in some way, in one way or another, any decision that you made, that mm-hmm. any of us make, it's going to cause pain and be harmful in some way, in some way. at some point. Yeah. Hindsight is always going to be twenty twenty. Totally. I mean, like, it'd be the same thing if this person went for actuarial science. You know what I mean? Like, it would be, yeah. we have okay. no idea what. It's like, so if this is the version they're choosing, then I would support that because I think it's my job to support them. And, and I think as a society, we do ourselves a disservice. And from like the lens of childism, like when we think we know better, you know, I think a lot of that's also informed by my, you know, experience as like a trans activist, like talking about how many young people know their bodies, they know what they want, they understand who they are, they can express this very, very early on. I mean, like, up 18 months, even. And so to know that and to have had interactions with so many of them because of like what I do online, I have so much more respect, I think, for like young people as autonomous beings than I perhaps would have a few years ago. I would have been like, no, that's the wrong thing. We're gonna, it's basically institutionalized harm for kids. And it is. And so is every education program, you know? Like right. there's yeah. no it's way sort to- of like, I love the way you phrased it of like, which version of this inevitable trauma yeah. is the one that you yeah. want to experience. Yeah. Choose your own experience, <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. Choose your own adventure. Yeah. Choose your own trauma. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's good. That's the answer that that's okay. how I would look at it and how I would For approach sure. it. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for coming on to talk Thanks about. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all of this. Do you have anything <laughs> that you want to plug uh, that isn't a SAG project? that you can plug? Actually, I, I'm taking a break from like doing theater and obviously TV film because strike, but like I haven't, I'm not doing anything in the moment. Like I just finished my last show of the year and so now I'm writing a book. So stay tuned for that Ooh. because um, I will be plugging that as, <laughs> at some point um, once everything is finalized. But I think what I would really plug is like for everybody to continue delving into the opportunity to find out what kind of artist they want to be. I think everybody's an artist. I really do. And I think that everybody has the opportunity to connect with that. And so instead of being like, Oh, I loved what James said. I want to know more about them. Like, sure you can. And also like, I hope that this is an opportunity for you to sit and think about the kind of artist you want to be. And like, where are the places in which you can make change in your community about the ways that we treat each other, whether that is as an artist community, whether that's as people, um, you know, what does the art that you love inspire you to do in the world outside you is, is kind of always the question I'm coming up with. And so that's what I would really want to plug for everyone. That is amazing. That's ah, where can people find you on the internet? I am at James is smiling on Instagram and TikTok. Those are the only places that I exist. Oh, I'm on threads, but I just use threads for thirst traps. That might be very interesting, actually, to a lot of you. I don't know. Um, and so it was just kind of a running joke. It's like, because I don't have a Twitter because like Twitter is where nuance goes yeah. to die and where oh, they yeah. go to hate by, trans by literal design. No, by like, literal literally. design. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Like if I search myself on Twitter, I just cry. Like there's no reason oh, for me to put God. myself through that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not on it. So I was like, well, I can't. Where am I going to be horny? So that's threads. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, you might see me at the equity building. Say hi. <laughs> Run into James at the Equity Building. Probably, there yeah. Are your instructions. So yeah, I am really offer only these days, and I'm totally kidding. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that's like, where you can hair find toss. Me. I'm like Audra. Well, oh, well, a lot of people have been saying that, and so I am here to set the rumors straight. <laughs> Good God. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's that's where I exist. If you want to join my corner of the internet, it's wild. I, we never know what's going to happen around there. That's the fun of it. <laughs> and uh, if you want to stay far away from that, that's okay, too. <laughs> I am a fan of your corner of the internet. Oh, thank you. I appreciate Same. that. So, Alex, did we solve BFA programs? Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. There is so much work to do. I, I want to say yes, but oh, man, no. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Try again. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try again in, in a couple of years. Uh, maybe yes. we. Maybe maybe they'll let us in this time. <laughs> maybe um, until until then. And, until then, we have a podcast. <laughs> I love it. That's amazing. I was gonna say like maybe the the way BFA programs reflect trends in the industry will have like it'll trickled up or trickled down or whatever. Something. Um, trickled osmosis around. <laughs> um, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. It's losing my mind. Um, All right. Um, until then, until we're accepted into a BFA program of our choosing. We have a podcast, Partial Beat Podcast, and we'll be back for more episodes in a couple weeks. Tune in then. In the meantime, subscribe, share us with your friends and family and anyone you think would like the show. Rate, review, do all the things. You know where to find us. expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye. <laughs>